Welcome back to the Bite Me Nutrition Podcast. Today, we're going to be going through FODMAPs, what they are, what that funny word means, where you might find them, why they may or may not be relevant to you. Um, and then, of course, we can't really talk about FODMAPs without also quickly going through the low FODMAP diet. Uh, so we'll finish by going through that, what those different stages are to give you a bit of an overview. Um, and so hopefully, look, for some of you, this podcast is going to be super irrelevant uh, because you're not going to be sensitive to any FODMAPs and that's awesome. You can maybe, I don't know, listen to this because it's still going to be interesting for others. Um, this might, I don't know, you might have a little bit of a light bulb moment and go, oh, I've, this is something I've never considered before. Maybe I need to reach out to a professional who can help me chat through this a bit further or take this a little bit further. So um, today, brief overview of FODMAPs and their potential role in IBS and bloating, as well as the low FODMAP diet. If that sounds like you, please stick around. So Basically, the, the term FODMAP is an acronym. It stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So, you know, super easy to remember all of that, I'm sure. But basically what they are is these are different types or different families of uh, short-chain carbohydrates. So just what that means is they're small fibers that our body can, well, not our body, our gut bacteria can ferment. Happy days. Um, there's six different types. We've got fructans, galacto-oligosaccharides or GOS, uh, excess fructose, lactose, which you're probably familiar with, uh, mannitol and sorbitol. Um, and what you'll find is uh, different foods contain different FODMAPs. Some foods contain a couple of FODMAPs in one, others contain no FODMAPs or very, very low levels of FODMAPs and would be considered what we would phrase as low FODMAP. However, things like garlic and onion are high in the specifically in the FODMAP. Fructans, milk is high specifically in lactose. You know, um, what's another example? Like, so almonds are specifically high in uh, GOS or galacto oligosaccharides. So uh, it's not really about going low FODMAP forever and removing all of these FODMAPs because generally, if someone is sensitive to FODMAPs at all, <laughs> a lot of people aren't but if you are it's very unlikely that you're going to be sensitive to all six forever what's typically typically uh the case is you are sensitive or intolerant of one two potentially three um but by going through the low FODMAP diet and the, that whole process which we'll take you through in a moment um you can identify which of the six FODMAPs are specifically problematic um, and then look at adjusting your intake of just foods high in that FODMAP rather than blanket removing a whole heap of other very, very healthy foods that you otherwise don't need to remove. So for example, if you are sensitive to fructans, you may need to moderate your garlic and onion intake. That doesn't mean you need to moderate your avocado intake because avocado is actually high in sorbitol. And if you're not sensitive to sorbitol, it would be such a shame for you to remove something as nutritious or nutrient dense as avocado from your diet unnecessarily. So that's why it's really important that we don't just stop at going, quote unquote, low FODMAP. There's a lot more to it than that. But the reason we talk about going low FODMAP at all when we're talking about specifically IBS related symptoms and bloating it says there's kind of a couple of different mechanisms by which that might happen. The first is um, FODMAPs can draw water into the small intestine throughout their, their journey through the gut. Um, and that 
obviously causes the small intestine to swell, which is uncomfortable and can cause a few other problems. Then as the FODMAPs travel through and reach your large intestine, um, some in some individuals, they can be over-fermented by their gut bacteria. This causes, rather than just kind of a normal, natural level of gas, gas production, we get an excessive amount of gas production, which can significantly increase the amount of bloating um, and distension, can draw more water into the large intestine as well. And this water retention plus the gas production can also then begin to trigger or exacerbate something called visceral hypersensitivity, which is when the uh, very intricate and delicate web of nerves that surrounds your gut um, organs can essentially overfire and get over triggered. <laughs> over, there's a word that I can't find. Anyway, I'm going to go with triggered. Um, and so that can then also have an impact uh, on the gut brain axis. That can, it can be a bit of a. Uh, snowball a bit of a vicious cycle and, and anyway this is not a podcast on ibs or bloating that would actually be a good idea i should do that i'll put that on the list but for now that's kind of the very very um broad view of why we talk about fodmaps when it comes to bloating and ibs now there are lots of lots of other lifestyle and environmental and other dietary factors that may be playing a role in bloating or IBS if that is something you suffer with. Please do not immediately diagnose yourself with a FODMAP intolerance and put yourself on the low FODMAP diet just because you're bloated, right? Don't do it. You wouldn't do that, I'm sure. I can trust you, but just don't do it. If that is something you are struggling with, the first thing you should do is see your GP. Um, they'll ask you a few questions, mostly to rule out some potentially scary stuff. I don't want to panic you. It's just good to rule that stuff out. Um, and then if they do just diagnose you with sort of general IBS, the next thing I would be doing is seeing a dietitian who can dive into some of those other environmental factors, dietary factors, and then potentially look to see if the FODMAP, low FODMAP diet is suitable for you. So excellent segue. It's like I've it's like I planned this uh, into what the low FODMAP diet is. Uh, it's a three stage diet. Um, like I said, it's generally something that we would implement after we've checked off a few other things to make sure that there's not other factors contributing to the bloating and the IBS. Um, as <laughs> the name suggests, it's low in. FODMAPs. So those foods I mentioned before, garlic, onion, uh, milk, avocado, like it's a much, much bigger list, but um, it's a diet that is low in those foods. And it's designed to help you eventually identify which specific FODMAPs uh, you may be sensitive to, right? So like I said, there's three stages. And the first stage is probably the hardest, and that is the low FODMAP phase, where for six to eight weeks, we remove all high FODMAP foods, we replace them with low FODMAP foods. Um, and the goal is to essentially find a reduction in all symptoms so we can find this little bit of a, a baseline, right? Um, it's important that we do this for the six to eight weeks because um, even after you've removed even after you've removed some of the trigger foods, there can still be some longer lasting uh, visceral hypersensitivity and a few other things. So if we, we can give it that six to eight weeks, it essentially really lets the gut calm down. It's really important to note at this point that the, long, the low FODMAP diet should not be a long-term approach virtually ever um i know it can be tricky especially if you're someone who's been suffering with symptoms and the low fodmap 
portion of this diet has given you relief. You kind of just want to stay there forever because it's comfortable, but it's really important we don't do that for a couple of different reasons. The first is um, the low FODMAP diet is generally a little bit deficient in fiber. You're at risk of being low in calcium, B vitamins, and a few other bits and pieces because of just the the unfortunately necessary restrictive nature of the diet. Um, it also significantly reduces your dietary diversity um, and just your dietary fiber diversity, um, which is going to have an impact on your long-term gut health, right? So important, again, what not to just stay in the low FODMAP phase forever. Um, you know, socially, it's going to have a big impact because it, it does limit what you're eating. So again, it's not something you want to uh, do for longer than you have to. Um, uh, because look, ultimately, FODMAPs, the actual little fiber types, if you are not overly sensitive to them, they are really healthy. They're one of your gut bacteria's favorite food. So like I said previously, if you're sensitive to one of those FODMAPs, figuring out what that is so you can get the other five FODMAPs in or foods containing FODMAPs in is really, really important for long-term health. So I think I've, I think I've lent on that point hard enough. Don't stay low FODMAP forever. The second phase is called the challenge phase. Uh, and this is when we start to reintroduce foods that are specific foods that are high in specific FODMAPs. So like I said, there's a few foods that contain kind of, um, two or more FODMAPs, they're not helpful in this stage because if you introduce something that's high in, say, fructans and fructose and you have a, uh, you get some symptoms, we don't know which of the two FODMAPs triggered that. So we use sort of uh, specific foods, high in specific FODMAPs and in specific amounts, so specific serving sizes because, um, you know, uh, what's a good example? So, uh, for example, uh, 60 to 80 mils of milk would be considered like moderate FODMAP, whereas 125 to 250 mils of milk is moving into higher FODMAP, right? So we can't just say add milk. We would be more specific with our serving sizes. Um, we'd do that for a few days. We'd probably gradually build the dose or the, the serving size up over two to three days. Um, and when we would wait to see usually via a well-kept food diary, have you experienced symptoms? If not, giving it seven to 10 days in between each challenge, and then you would challenge again with the next FODMAP family, and you would move through the challenge phase like that. At the end of the challenge phase, the goal will have been you've identified which of the FODMAPs is the problematic one, which one you are sensitive to. And this is where we move into the third phase, which is personalization. The good news is most people can tolerate some level of the FODMAP that they are sensitive to. So once you've identified the FODMAP or FODMAPs that you are sensitive to, it's not about eliminating them all entirely forever. The personalization phase is really about figuring out what your, your individual threshold or dose is um, you know so you might find that if you are sensitive to uh, lactose um, a serve of greek yogurt in the morning and a little bit of milk in your coffee caffeine is another tricky thing but we'll talk about it in another podcast um, you might find that those two serves that's not too much lactose even if you are sensitive to lactose but if you then have some cheese in your sandwich at lunch um, and some ice cream for dessert that may tip you over your threshold and so the personalization phase is about finding out what your threshold is so we can work within that and again the goal being to include as much variety and as much foods in our diet as we can whilst still managing our symptoms longer term it is important to kind of retest your 
uh, sensitivity to these foods because your sensitivity does change. Um, so making sure that you know you don't just restrict that FODMAP forever or stick to one serve a day, you may potentially find that you can include more as you move forwards. Um, the last thing I would just say around FODMAP, something I always like to mention as well, is if it turns out that you are sensitive to XYZ of the FODMAPs, um, the symptoms that you experience when you eat that FODMAP aren't in and of themselves dangerous. It's not an inflammatory response. It's not an um, allergic response, uh, which means that if after eating too much ice cream, that crosses your threshold and you feel terrible, um, no physical damage is done. So you can choose to roll those dice or choose to accept the consequences of your actions sometimes if you are in a scenario where there's that incredible gelato that you've been waiting years to try and you just want to go for it. That is your choice as an adult. But really the whole point of, of reaching that end stage of the FODMAP diet isn't to completely eliminate those foods. It's to give you that clarity around what your specific triggers are and how you can work through them. So last thing I will say, I swear if I find out someone's just thrown themselves on the low FODMAP diet without, because it's really frustrating when I have a new client who comes to me who says they've done the low FODMAP diet before, but hasn't done it properly. And I don't blame them at all for that. It's a very hard diet. But what it means is those six to eight to 10 to 12 weeks that they spent doing that low FODMAP diet was kind of a waste of time. So if you're going to do it, please do it with the help of, the prof of a professional. Please use the FODMAP, uh, the Monash FODMAP app. It is incredible, not sponsored, would pay 10 times what I paid for it happily. It's an incredible. But if this is something that has piqued your interest and something you think might be relevant to you, please chat to your GP or reach out to a dietitian who can help or uh, send me a message on um, all of the different places, all, of, all roads lead to Rome. Um, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, as always, please feel to, uh, feel, feel to, Good. it's like 12 o'clock at night so i apologize but please feel free to like subscribe etc etc and um uh love you forever